The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician originally trained in Britain. I'm actually retired from medical practice, and now I'm an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Today's episode is Dementia Beyond Drugs, Inspiration for Family Caregivers. So what's dementia? Well, dementia is the name, the the medical name, for the loss of mental abilities such as thinking, remembering, and reasoning. These mental abilities are lost with various diseases and conditions that affect the brain. And the commonest type of Alzheimer's, sorry, the commonest type of dementia, um, certainly for older people, is Alzheimer's disease. Now, just by way of starting, I want to say something about what I've learned from guests in previous episodes of Family Caregivers Unite about the challenges that dementia, especially especially Alzheimer's disease, um, bring for family caregivers. Um, what they describe is how they found themselves doing more and more for their family member, but because the changes were so gradual, it took a while, perhaps too long, for them to realize that something was wrong. They found the changes in their family member's behavior a major challenge, yet, on the other hand, they experienced occasions when The sun shone for them and their family member, even when the disease had progressed a long way. They found that they still had challenges when the family member was in a care facility. Um, They were, and perhaps still are, uncertain about the value of medications, though they do see these as helpful in, in some circumstances. And overall, they want to know more to feel better equipped with trustworthy knowledge so they can do their best for their family members. Now, to discuss these things and others, our guests today are Dr. Al Power and Sarah Rowan. They're going to talk about the challenges and the particular solutions that they envision for family caregivers. Now, let me tell you about the two guests. First of all, Dr. Al Power. He's Eden Mentor at St. Sarah's Home in Rochester, New York and Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Rochester. He is board-certified internist and geriatrician, a fellow of the American College of Physicians and the American Society for Internal Medicine. His new book, Dementia Beyond Drugs, Changing the Culture of Care, was released in February of 2010. He's a certified Eden Alternative educator and a member of the Eden Alternatives Board of Directors. 
He's a widely traveled lecturer, speaker, and consultant on dementia and other elder care topics. He's a weekly contributor to Eden founder Dr. Bill Thomas's Greenhouse Changing Aging, which is on Facebook. He's been widely interviewed by media nationally and internationally. And he's also a trained musician and songwriter with three recordings, including Life Worth Living, a celebration of elders and those who care for them. And his songs have been recorded by several artists and performed on three continents. For example, Peter, Paul, and Mary performed his song of elder autonomy, If You Don't Mind, and Walter Cronkite used his song, I Love You Forever, in a Discovery Channel profile of American families. Sarah Rowan holds the bachelor's and master's degrees in elementary education. She is a sister, mother, grandmother, and friend. She was born into nurturing. When men went off to fight in World War II, strong women of her family stayed behind to manage the land and love and support one another. She watched her remarkable mama care for her uncle when he returned from the war as a wounded veteran with lingering injuries. When she was 11 years old, her father was killed in a motor vehicle accident. Mama, her extended family, and community provided the love when Daddy was no longer there. Experienced in the family caregiving life from an early age, Sarah lived what she believed. Living the belief, as she calls it, was the strength for her years of support for her physician husband as he slipped into Alzheimer's disease. It was strength for her as she survived her own encounter with breast cancer. And it is there the living with belief in the messages she brings to audiences around the world, messages of hope and faith and beauty and dignity, messages as distinct and compelling and yet as gentle and personal as a whisper. Sarah is the heart whisperer. Dr. Al and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Gordon. Okay. Now, I'm going to start with Dr. Al, and please tell us first about your profession more about your professional background and your current work in dementia. But first, do you have personal experience as a family caregiver? Um, not any direct ones. The closest probably was my mother-in-law who lived with dementia for several years, first uh, in an adult apartment, assisted living, and finally spent the last few years of her life here at St. John's Home in Rochester. Uh, so through uh, my wife's uh, care for her, I had that experience. I've had grandparents who lived with dementia, but no one where I had to provide the uh, direct hands-on care. So I haven't had uh, those experiences or challenges myself. So how did you actually get into working with dementia in the uh, way you Well, are? I started by moving from private practice to nursing home medicine back in 1991 and uh, initially did a sort of a lifestyle move but came to love the work I was doing. And uh, as I moved through further and cared for more and more people with various forms of dementia, I uh, became more and more frustrated by the fact that nothing we did seemed to create any true ease or well-being for people and frustrated with uh, our general approach. Uh, and uh, I began working with the culture change movement, particularly the Eden Alternative, a movement to transform nursing homes from institutions into more life-affirming uh, places to live and work. And uh, it wasn't until recently that I finally was able to put those two thoughts together and come up with what I think was a better pathway for people uh, living with dementia. Right. Sarah? bit more about your background, please, but particularly what led you into inspirational work. And 
Let me start with a quick question first. I'm assuming you work with family caregivers. That's right, isn't it? I do work with family caregivers. Actually, my, my journey in caring began as an elementary teacher, and I began to see then that you just can't love a child without loving their parents and knowing their parents and knowing the community that helped them to become what they are. And so from being an educator, which actually means to bring to fruition all that is within you. So it's not just about the book. It's about the heart. It's about the community. It's about the interaction with the parents. So it was there. And then after uh, that, in teaching children, you began to see the difficulties in their families, the struggles, the dementia care. I saw it many times, the uh, adversities that they had. So it took me out of the school into their homes. And I had remembered from my own childhood the same type of story, that people would come to my family if they needed care, if they needed a listening ear, if they needed someone to just affirm them. So it was a form of culture change early in my life that had no name at that time. Right. So, Charles, just a quick word about your book. First of all, who's it intended for, and what was it actually that led you to write it? Uh, the book is intended really for a general audience. I, I, I tried to write it in a language so that it would be accessible to both professional and uh, informal uh, care partners, uh, whether they be family members or trained staff. Uh, I certainly want doctors to read it too, but I didn't create doctors as my core audience because I really felt that the way to change our approach was to give this information to as many people that do direct care as possible. What really brought it about, as I mentioned, was my frustration with uh, with uh, what our approach is doing right now or what it's not doing. And I think you framed it nicely at the beginning when you talked about people have challenges, but they also have rays of sunshine. And I saw those too, and it didn't make sense to me that a disease would just all of a sudden relent for a few minutes and, and bring about these uh, good periods. It seemed to me that there had to be more going on in a person's care and in their environment that brought about these periods of well-being and how could we harness these better. And I began to lecture for a long time on non-pharmacologic approaches to distress, but it always seemed to fall short in practice. And what I really realized through the whole Eden Alternative Pathway was that it's not just enough to have somebody uh, get a hand massage or full washcloths for a half hour. They really need to have a complete transformation of the environment in which they live. And that could be a nursing home, but it could also be one's own home uh, with a different eye toward what the person needs to continue to succeed. Right. Sarah, this has got to be a relatively quick one, but I will give you more chance after the break. I want to know more about what really influenced your um, move into inspirational work. Sarah? Yes. Okay, the inspirational work came because I think I felt the presence of a spirit guiding me because sometimes you can be in situations that are very difficult and you just think that you yourself have no ability to handle that. But I felt an overpowering spirit helping me, and I began to think if that's what it is, I want to know what it is, and I want to be that presence in people's lives. So I would think that I would call it actually a spiritual presence in my own life and a spiritual presence that I wanted to offer to others. And presumably that was encouraged, that feeling of of spiritual presence, by your own experience as a family caregiver and your experience with your family uh, atmosphere. Absolutely, it was. Right. Now, is that something, that sense of um, belief, belief, 
experience of family caregiving in the family, something you see in the people you're providing advice to or inspirational work with? Yes, it is. I think many times when people and families first begin to realize that they're going to be a caregiver, it's such a transformational period that they're in denial about it for such a long time. And I feel when in my work that if I can help people to keep open hearts filled with love rather than have hearts that close or hearts that harden, then they can look at caregiving as a way of honoring someone they love in an altered form perhaps, but it's still honoring someone they love. And if that is not done, in their minds it's sort of dishonoring. So there's such a thin thread between honoring and dishonoring those we love and our attitudes about doing it. And um, I think if we can just open our hearts to tenderness even for ourselves, we can't help but project that on others. Right. Now, I'm going to take the break now because in the, in the uh, next segment, we're going to be talking in more detail about those kinds of things. Um, so it is that time when we have to take the short break. This is Dr. Gordon Everly, and my guests are Sarah Rowan and Dr. Al Powell. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay with us. We will be back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Ever wondered what private investigators really do and how they go about solving cases? Each week, P.I.'s Declassified gives a glimpse into this little-known world. Join your host, Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator, in conversations with detectives and experts in the field. False confessions, forensic evidence, finding missing persons, exposing fraud, exonerating the innocent. All areas that Francie and her guests will cover. And have they got stories to tell? Tune in and call in to the live show Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Help, you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc g at mymonami.com that's doc letter g at mymonami.com now back to family caregivers unite 
Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Dr. Dr. Al Power and Sarah Rowan. Our topic is Dementia Beyond Drugs, Inspiration for Family Caregivers. So now I want to talk about, we want to talk about current medical approaches to dementia. And start with Dr. Al. What are the really key points in your book and why are they important to family caregivers when you're talking about current medical approaches to dementia? I think the main point that I make in my book, which is really fairly radical compared to most of what you read about dementia, is that we have had an approach to care for the past 100-plus years that really doesn't work. And part of it is because of our focus on disease, disability, and decline. Uh, We have developed such a dialogue around the tragedy of Alzheimer's disease that we uh, see disease when we see people, and as a result, it colors our whole view of what they are, what they can be, their potential, and how we need to respond to them. And that takes us down a road of uh, increasingly medicating people, disempowering them, isolating them, institutionalizing them, which really causes what we call excess disability, where the person is actually more disabled and suffering more than the disease itself would be expected to cause. Right. Sarah, I'm presuming now that you provide support to family caregivers who are facing the Alzheimer's dementia situation. And what I want to know is your approach to supporting family caregivers in those situations. Sarah? Yes. Uh, Al, I liked your statement about that. I believe that so much that sometimes excess disability can happen when we have had patients over-medicated. I think the thing with care of family caregivers is that they are approaching this many times out of fear. They're approaching it out of denial. I mean, I did the same thing myself. And it's such a long point of coming to the reality that your loved one is going to be a little bit different than the loved one that you know. But if you can face that with, it's still your loved one. It's still your loved one. And I think just being engaged with them and being still very joyful with them, because as Al said, it's not the end of the world. It's just a transformation for them. And so with caregivers that I approach, I want them to know that there are people that can be available to them, even if not with the answer for them. They have listening ears and listening hearts. So it's very important for family caregivers to reach out and uh, to not be embarrassed, to not be ashamed. I mean, I've seen with this disease that many people still in this age feel humiliation, feel embarrassment on their family. There's nothing like that that it should ever be. It would be like any other disease that we might have. So it's just another way of walking our journey. Right. Dr. Al, you've said several important things that I won't highlight again, but they were very clear about the current medical approach to dementia. Please say more, particularly from the perspective of family caregivers and, you know, in relation to what Sarah's just been saying about her, her insight into these matters. 
Yeah, Trump. Sarah just makes some some wonderful points, and and one of them that that my model really requires, and and I tell people that it involves a certain amount of letting go, and as Sarah said, understanding that certain things that have changed are not going to magically change back. There's no pill that's going to do that, and once you accept that there's a new normal, that can help uh, uh, sort of unburden you from some of the difficulties. There's still some grieving, but it teaches you to be more focused on the moment and on what's coming rather than uh, just grieving what is no more. And one of the ways I start people down this road, the very first thing I do when I shift people, is I ask them to accept a new definition of dementia. And this is one that doesn't talk about disease or tangles or plaques or brains. It says dementia is a shift in the way a person experiences the world around them. And that's a little less scary, a little bit more easy to grab onto because, you know, if we're 50, we don't experience the world the same way we did when we were 20. And if we're 25, we don't experience it the way we did when we were 15. And people can understand, at least to some degree, that we all go through these transitions. And when you take it away from disease and decline and shift it to shifting experience, all of a sudden you see potential. You see potential for growth, for engagement, for well-being, in spite of the fact that the person has reached a, a different state than where they were before. Right. Sarah, you've had experience um, in two ways. First of all, as a family caregiver in relation to Alzheimer's disease and also in, in the work you do. Now, I'm going to ask you what problems you see falling out of the current medical approach that uh, Dr. Al has been talking about. What are the kind of things that you would point to as problems with the current medical approach? Well, Alzheimer's is such an individualized disease, and if you've seen one case, you've seen one case only, and everyone is so individualized. And I can speak from personal experience with my own husband. Uh, and there seemed to be no medication for him that was helpful to him. Uh, but the thing that I found that was with him that was so beautiful is he loved to be engaged with, with someone he loved, with me. And so my approach was I knew what the end of Alzheimer's usually does. It changes the one you love in an entirely different form, but it didn't today. So I could begin each new day with a new celebration of his life the way that it was. And one specific incident was taking him on a picnic, and he excused himself to go into a little tiny wooded area, and he dug up this little sapling, and he came back to me, and he gave it to me, and he said, uh, Here, my sweetheart, I dug up this little tree. It was going to be killed between these two stones. I saved it for you. So he gave it to me like liquid gold, and... I put it in a little Dixie cup, and I said to him, Oh, what makes you the miracle that you are? And he responded, What makes you the miracle that you are? It came to me that if every word any of us spoke to each other were echoed back to us, would we feel celebrated or would we feel just tolerated? Very, 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 very good question. Now, I'm going to ask Dr. Al this. In relation to what Sarah's been saying, and I'll put it in this terms, what Sarah's just described is a moment when the sun shone for her yes. and her husband. That's very, very clear. Now, what do the medical use of medications do in relation to those moments 
and just generally in the short and long term for families and family caregiving in the kind of situations that Sarah's been discussing and that your book describes. What are the consequences? I have yet to see a medication that causes that kind of interaction to occur. I'll tell you that for starters. Um, but uh, medications, uh, when people are distressed, are generally used to quiet the distress, and they often will do that, but usually that quietness comes through some form of sedation. It doesn't really create true relaxation, feelings of ease or well-being. What you see are people that are quieter but just don't quite put things together as well as they did before they're on the medication. And that really meets the needs of stressed caregivers more than it does the needs of the individual. And the, the key problem is that we see behavioral distress as the problem rather than as a symptom of an unmet need in the environment. And when we see it as a problem, as practitioners, we treat it with a medication and we make the problem go away. But it's like treating pneumonia with cough syrup. If you just treat the symptom, eventually that problem is going to fester and it's going to come back. And uh, the real problem is a lack of well-being. And there are a lot of ways to describe that we can get into. But if you create the right environment for well-being, often the distress goes away without directly attacking it. Sarah, back to you. That notion of well, idea of well-being, um, it seems to me that that fits very clearly with the moments of the sun shining, and also it fits with your sense that everything hasn't gone. There's still opportunities for sun shining, um, for life to be different, but nevertheless, um, rewarding to both people. So I want, what I want you to talk about is the way in which you advise family caregivers um, to really develop that sort of situation where the sun shines, where the stress on the family is reduced, and if I may just introduce this, perhaps the sense of guilt that some families still have is reduced. What do you say? Well, that's, uh, Al, your response was beautiful, and uh, Dr. Gordon, that question is beautiful, because the answer to that is just as individualized as there are caregivers. But I do think this. I do believe that if, if your heart can be open to loving throughout this entire thing, not questioning, not not wondering what the end will be, but living in the moment. If anything it taught me during my caregiving adult experience is that I had a beautiful opportunity to live every day in the moment. I may have known that the future would not be what it is today, but that was the future. And my husband lived in the moment. And so it kept me in the moment. It kept me seeking for him uh, moments of celebration. It kept me for him and for others that I advised. It kept me for them, seeing them that the person that they were, not maybe the person that they are right now, but somewhere in there, the person that they still are is trapped in there. And our joy is to love wherever they are and however they are. And it, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying if we can have that philosophy about it, it will be rewarding. And many times our people that we serve reflect our own attitude and our own body countenance and our own sense of frustration or contentment. So there's a reflection going on 
then, like a mirror. Yes, like a mirror. Yeah. Now, it's coming up to the time of the break, and we will um, be returning from that to continue this discussion. So let's take the break now. Um, it is that time. We have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guests are Sarah Rowan and Dr. Al Power. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please stay tuned. We will be back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airway of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Help, you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Sarah Rowan and Dr. Al Power. Our topic is Dementia Beyond Drugs, Inspiration for Family Caregivers. Uh, Now let's talk about alternative approaches. So starting with you, Dr. Al, what changes are needed in the current approach to care in dementia? The best way I can describe this to people is to talk about the situation of, uh, let's say, a gentleman who has an injury, and a spine injury, and becomes paralyzed and now needs to use a wheelchair. This is another example of someone whose experience of the world has suddenly changed. And uh, if he were to roll down the street and come to a restaurant or an office building and encounter a large stairway, he would be stuck because he can no longer walk up the stairs. But through our disability uh, legislation, we now require disability access of all public buildings so that people can continue to succeed even though they've lost the ability to walk. And uh, what I'd like to say is the problem with dementia is we don't build ramps for people with dementia. We continue to expect people whose experience of the world is changing to continue to navigate our world as we do. And when they can't do it and become distressed, we give them medication to calm their distress. And it's sort of like picking up the guy in the wheelchair and saying, we want you to walk because we walk, and throwing him forward. And if he falls on the ground and gets upset, saying, well, he has a behavior problem, and giving him an antipsychotic pill. We create environments where people cannot succeed, and then we medicate the very predictable distress that occurs. So what we need to do is look at the individual, as Sarah suggested, understand the world through his or her eyes, and then find ways we can safely and effectively transform the care environment to uh, enable them to continue to be successful. Right. Sarah, there's a lot of talk about quality of life issues. What do those mean to you, and how do you think they should be approached by family caregivers 
in the what I'll call the dementia family care situation, quality of life issues. Sarah? Yes, the quality of life issues. I think it's a major thing because, as Al said, because someone is sedated and they're quiet, doesn't mean that the quality of life for them is meaningful. And so if we can keep quality of life so that it is meaningful and so interaction with people is meaningful, it doesn't mean it's the same, but it can mean that they feel a well-being. And I, I, I saw with my own husband, it was just very little that it would take. A harmonica, for one thing, was a great way of creating joy for him if he was agitated or not agitated. didn't matter whether it was a, a Carnegie Hall music, but it was something that he enjoyed. And I think it was an interesting thing that just recently I met the man that was one of the care partners for my husband in a facility care, and he said, oh, Mrs. Rowan, I took care of your husband, and he loved to play the harmonica. And when he had finished for the night, he would drop the harmonica in the fish tank. And my job was to pull it out of the fish tank and get it ready for tomorrow. And I thought, joy in both places. His job was to clean the harmonica for tomorrow. And my my husband's joy was that he had something that gave him a quality of life that he enjoyed. Wow. Dr. Al, you talked about a ramp. And you said there really isn't a ramp for the dementia uh, the approach to dementia. So let me ask you about the ramps that you advocate in dementia and always with the emphasis on how these are helpful for family caregivers. Sure. Uh, they're really, when, whenever you transform any care environment, it's more than just bricks and mortar. We're really talking about not only what can be done physically to an environment, but much more importantly, what can be done in the interpersonal aspect. And also uh, what we call operational in nursing homes, but really uh, even in the home environment, uh, how are decisions made, how are people engaged in day-to-day decisions. But so much of it falls into our own attitudes and beliefs and the way we, uh, the way we respond. And, and I just have to point up that story that Sarah told because it said something so powerful. And the powerful thing was that that young man did not see Joseph's dropping the harmonica in the fish tank as evidence of a problem or pathology. He said, he is engaged in well-being due to this harmonica. It's my job to make sure that harmonica is clean, sterile, and ready for him next time he wants it. That is such a shift that so many people have difficulty making, and yet that is exactly what a ramp is. That is a perfect example of someone who sees what Joseph needs to succeed and enables that. Right. I'm going to come back to you on that one, but first I just want to ask Sarah, these new approaches the kind that Dr. Al is talking about, what's your experience of them, and particularly in relation to the family caregivers you, you provide help to, that you, you give your support to? Well, culture change to family caregivers is a breath of, a breath of fresh air for them and for the whole society in the industry of caring because it changes from the traditional approach that we've all known into something that is much more home-like, creates much more well-being, and creates much more comfort, not only for the patient, but also for the people that work there, 
for the nurses, for the CNAs, for everyone. It creates much more of a well-being for everyone. So the new culture change approaches, like uh, the rant that Dr. Al talked about, they're all wonderful new ways of just honoring the person and their needs individually. Right. Dr. Al, let's go back to the fish tank harmonica (laughs) and that sense of duty that that young man had and what the, his sense of his own professionalism. Um, let me ask you now, what are the things that r- deep down really power that kind of approach? How, in other words, do you get that concept of the ramp in those situations across to institutions, across to um, our profession, and uh, above all, across to families? The key to me is really to try to walk in the other person's shoes, or in the case of the wheelchair, roll in their chair. Um, And this is something that that really powers my model, which is why I call it an experiential model. As Sarah suggested, even though you can look at the same brain changes in millions of people with Alzheimer's, each one's changes are being channeled through that person's own personality, their history, their uh, strengths and weaknesses, their values and spirituality. And to understand where that person is coming from is the best key to trying to find solutions that actually enhance that person's well-being instead of just judging them as being, you know, abnormal and medicating uh, the result. And and so I think that's really uh, where family caregivers really need to start. Uh, Tom Kipwood, who was a real pioneer in this whole person-centered approach, said that we do something. As soon as we know people have the label dementia and go to that disease model in our heads, we automatically do something we call positioning, which is we automatically ascribe people's behavior to their disease, and we automatically assume that they're less capable than they really are. So the first step really for any family caregiver is to really understand what the person is going through as best they can, and to keep that open mind about potential for the person to continue to be able and to be involved. So it's walking in their shoes and seeing the world as far as possible through their eyes. Is that right? Yes. A a quick example, very quick example uh, of a a story that Joanne Rader told uh, in her book about dementia, about a woman who uh, was working in a nursing home where there was a lady who kept getting out of bed at night. They could not get her to stay in bed. And they uh, used everything from restraints to sleeping pills to bathroom trips to late-night snacks. And it wasn't until finally one of the nursing assistants laid down on the bed and said, what is she experiencing, that the hallway light that fell right on her eyes was noticed. And they turned that light off, and the woman went to bed and never got up again. Uh, unless you live that person's experience, you never would find that. Yeah, yeah. Sarah, I, I want to ask you particularly about family caregivers with a family member with dementia, where the care is going on at home, that is to say the person with the dementia is living with them at home. Please tell me what you think about the new approaches that um, Dr. Al is talking about in that home care situation. Well, it's, uh, it's, a different, it's just a different attitude. Besides the physical aspects that have to be um, perhaps altered in a home to take care of someone with any type of disability, uh, the other part that has to be altered is the view in which the care partner is viewing the situation. And to me, that's the main thing. I noticed when my husband, who would, I felt would be teaching the greatest part of his subject matter 
in this altered form of his life because he himself had changed. And the facts didn't matter at that time. And his inhibitions had gone. He could go to a worship service or whatever it was and sing long after the song had finished because that was the joy in his heart. Now, maybe someone thought, oh, he's singing, it's not on tune, or the song has ended. But for him, the song had not ended. And I thought it was so wonderful that for us, the way the song ends for us is not the way it ends for them. And so if we can continue to let them sing their song without being embarrassed, when their heart wants to sing, how can you keep a heart from singing? Right, right. Now, I've heard people talk, as I'm sure you have, in a way that suggests that um, there's an element of guilt. That is to say, if we, the family caregivers, are not working hard enough or we're not being successful in what we do, apparently, then we feel guilty, even perhaps to the point of overdoing things and undermining our own health. Dr. Al, first, is that perspective that I'm describing correct? That is to say, do people, patients you care for, um, go through that cycle? And if so, how should that be handled? Uh, they a absolutely do, and the other thing that happens is because of the types of institutions we've created for residential care, uh, the care homes, uh, that have such a stigma to them, people will often accept much more of a personal caregiving burden than they are capable of giving just to keep that person out of a home, and it creates this incredible burnout situation, and uh, I've talked to, uh, to caregivers who are bending over backwards, doing superhuman things to keep someone home just because, you know, as one woman told me, I know if he goes to a nursing home, he's going to be sedated or restrained, and I would rather hurt myself through stress than, than allow him to, to have that experience. Right. Um, it, it creates a really difficult situation, though, because here in the U.S., there's very little that can be provided in the way of formal care at home without pay, paying for it privately. And uh, it is so difficult for any one person to do the 24-hour-a-day job, job of care. So the first thing is to understand just what a huge burden that is and, uh, and that we need to create social networks that don't expect someone to go it alone. Right. Now, I'm going to, Sarah, I want to hear you on that question, but we do have the break, so I'll open up after the break by asking you the same question, the guilt and the overdoing it. Okay. So let's go into the break now. It's time for us to take the break. Um, this is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guests are Sarah Rowan and Dr. Al Parr. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel, and we will be back for the final segment where we will continue to explore these important issues. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Zoom Leadership. It's the big picture issues of the day, up close and personal capabilities of leadership, and a desirable future of constant renewal. Zoom Leadership. It's the economic crisis made clear, patterns and perspectives of leadership, and the importance of changing the way we pursue our future. Join host John Schmidt every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Zoom Leadership. An inside look at what's really going on in business, government, and civil society. Tune in every week on the Voice America Business Channel. Stimulate 
exciting talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Well, you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at mymonami.com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Sarah Rowan and Dr. Al Power. Our topic is Dementia Beyond Drugs, Inspiration for Family Caregivers. Now, I want to ask Sarah the question that I asked Dr. Al at the end of the last segment, which is, what about this guilt? What about this sense that family caregivers, caregivers drive themselves, even to the point of harming themselves and their health, when they feel that they're not doing a good enough job? Do you encounter that? And if so, what, what advice do you give? Absolutely. I think it's abs- very, very typical. In fact, now if I'm going out to speak before an audience and it's mostly caregivers, you can tell by the stoop of the shoulders uh, and the weariness and the look that the burden they carry it is great. And I don't know that there's really any way out of the physical part of that. And the thing that's interesting about that is the disease of Alzheimer's does more than physically um, diminish the health of their caregiver. In the end, it can emotionally disorganize them so much. And it's a very expensive, long, long journey. So many people do not even seek help because financially they cannot afford that. And even if they could, they're not sure where to go, what to ask for. And so it's, it's, it's a lonely walk. And uh, just an example is once when I had taken my husband to speak before a group of people about Alzheimer's, and they said, this is uh, Dr. and Mrs. Rowan, and they wish to talk to you about Alzheimer's. And I said to my husband, who never really seemed to be aware, as many people aren't, that he had that disease, I said, Joseph, is there anything that you'd like to say about Alzheimer's? And he said, well, no, we don't know anybody that has that disease. If you did, I said, what would you like to tell them? And he said, well, why don't you go first? And the three things I know about Alzheimer's, I said, it can come like a robber in the night, and it can rob you of your job or your career. Number two, it can come like a robber in the night, and it can rob you of your friends. Somehow they're there, but you seem to have changed or disappeared or evaporated or become invisible. And number three, it can even rob you of family members. When you call their names, where are they? I call the names of our children, Walter, Melissa, where are you? My husband walked beside me, cradled my cheeks in both hands and said, Don't you worry, my sweetheart. If you ever get that disease, I'll take care of you. Oh, yes. Yes, wonderful. Now, I want to go into the bigger, bigger question of what all this means um, and some of the issues that uh, we all, I think, have to look at. Um, that's because 
family caregiving is more and more important, not just for families, but also for the healthcare systems and society as a whole in North America, Europe, and beyond. And you've both made the point that money is involved. People can't always afford. People, many people can't afford the kind of care that um, would be the best in their particular circumstances. So now I want to talk about the solutions that are designed from these new approaches you've been talking about. And I particularly want to focus, Dr. Al, first of all, and this is my question to you, is we do also hear about family members who have to interact with behavioral problems that are, can be quite difficult. What are the solutions that you, foresee, you see and foresee increasingly for family caregivers interacting with family members where the behavioral problems are really becoming a major source of difficulty? Um, to me, uh, uh, an increase in behavioral distress indicates an increased mismatch with the environment and an increased challenge at meeting one's own uh, well-being needs. So once again, I kind of go back to this squishy concept of well-being, and let me quantify it a bit. There are a lot of different definitions, but I go with a monograph that some of my colleagues wrote where they describe seven domains of well-being, which are identity, growth, autonomy, security, connectedness, meaning, and joy. And once again, I tell people to try to take the focus off the behavior as the problem, but to see it as an unmet need and to look at those seven dimensions and say, how much autonomy does this person have? How much connectedness do they have? Are they doing things that have meaning for them? And to try to explore the underlying environment to see what you can find. Now, you know, if somebody is immediately having a, a very uh, frightening uh, distress, that is not always an easy thing to solve for the moment. And uh, so, but it, but in the long run, that has to be the solution. And the truth is that there are places where the home environment becomes so maladaptive to that person's needs with one stressed uh, caregiver that that it is not the best place for a person to live. And that's a difficult conversation too. Is when uh, really is this something that three shifts of professional staff need to? Uh, need to uh, create the care environment rather than one lone spouse or son or daughter living in a home environment. Right. Sarah, um, the behavioral problems of the kind that Al's been talking about, um, what have you seen of the way in which the solutions and the beliefs that you hold will help? And what do you say when the situation has reached the point that our child was talking about? That is, it's no longer practical for a single family caregiver to do the work that really is required by three trained professional caregivers. Sarah? Well, I, I think that time comes, and I call it the crisis. Many times people will say to me, oh, Sarah, when do you know when it's time to relinquish my care of my loved one into someone that's better trained and the facilities are better? When do I know? And and I say to them, you will mark your calendar with the date and you will erase it because you're not ready. You just can't do it. So you'll turn the calendar to two months away and you'll mark a date. And you say, oh, that's the time because you're seeing increasingly it is too hard. But then you sort of deny it because things get a little better. And so when that date comes, you erase it. The thing that makes you not erase the calendar again is the crisis the crisis that is too big for you. 
and the thing that you hope your heart has prepared for you is where will I go when the crisis hits and will it meet the needs of my loved one? Because it's the crisis that moves us often into that next step. Do you agree with that, Al? I do, and it's in, in a way it's, it's kind of necessary, the way we view things, uh, the way we care for people, but it's also unfortunate that people often have to make that really huge life transition in a time of crisis yes. rather than in a time they can choose uh, when things are calmer. Yes. Let me ask you both, and uh, starting with Dr. Al, you talked about money. Um, these are... In, in most countries, healthcare money is under considerable distress. If you were, this is an unfair question, but I'm still going to ask it. If you were actually a politician uh, appealing to an electorate to elect you, what are the proposals you would come up with re- relative to these questions of care and money for dementia um, that you would, if elected, be um, not only proposing, but attempting to uh, implement. Dr. Al, you're... Uh, you're leading into something that has been really exciting me lately. Uh, I've been working with people like Dr. Emmy Kiyoda and Dr. Bill Thomas, who've worked in this area. And that is that um, I think I would tie it into the same issues we have with an aging population. And that is that we do not have the financial capital for each person to tie themselves to the rock of independence their entire lives. And that doesn't mean we institutionalize or we spend more money. What it means is that we need to create more age-friendly communities and we need to harness social capital so that people are more interdependent and create communities where people can look after each other's needs. And there are places where this is being done around the world. The U.S. is a bit slow. Places like uh, Denmark that started co-housing movements to places like Japan that have villages for generations where people learn to live together. Um, We're starting with things like the naturally occurring retirement communities and some of those things. But social capital, I think, is really the answer. Financial capital will be exhausted by our medical system very soon. And unless we harness each other uh, in a way that goes beyond kin and blood, uh, it's going to be very difficult to meet those challenges. Sarah, we've got a short time only, but I want to hear your party platform for the idea of uh, doing a better job to support people um, in in the way that you've just both been identifying. Sarah? Yes, I agree with Al totally on that. It's a social capital movement that we reach out and we help each other. When you really think about it, a beggar is totally dependent upon the kindness of others. So when we drop a coin into the beggar's bowl, it's not because we know him. We're kind to him. So in the end, and he may just need a morsel of kindness. So we don't have to be related. We don't have to be kin. We don't have to be family. We do it because we want to reach out in kindness. And I think it's this social capital that's going to have to unite us because it's too much for a single caregiver. It's too financially expensive for families in the future. And I think the social capital movement is going to be the thing. And movements like the Eden Alternative. Dr. Bill Thomas that's doing these marvelous things, Al Power that's doing these wonderful things. And when Al says in his book, he thinks the key is reach from and for the heart. Right. If everyone really understands that, it's simple. Now, I'm just going to respond back to you by way of a little bit of summary because we're only a few seconds yet. But I am going to um, borrow from you um, the 
concept of social capital because that is exactly, uh, it seems to me, what's needed. That is to mobilize the human resources among family caregivers and others who uh, represent that social capital. So thank you. Second thing I want to say to you, if I were in your electoral district, I would vote for you both because I think you're on to very important things. Thanks, Gordon, but I don't want the job. <laughs> Thanks, Gordon. I'll talk to you about that afterwards. <laughs> and the other thing I just want to say is that um, on this show, I've heard many people um, now who become experienced as family caregivers, whether they knew it was going to happen to them or not, um, and they get a certain distance down the road, and then what do they do? They look over their shoulders back to people who are just setting out on the road to reach out yeah. and give them a hand in yeah. various ways. You, Sarah, are doing that. I think you, Al, from your experience, are doing that, and I think a lot of others. And I think that coincides with what you've so well termed to be uh, social capital. So on that point, I'm going to thank you both very much. I'm going to say to you, for everybody's sake, I wish you every success in everything you're wanting to do. And I hope we get an opportunity to talk about these things later on when we can compare notes on how things in our various projects are progressing. So I want to say um, thank you. Um, I've um, given you uh, what I hope is a boost. <laughs> and I very much want to hope, say to our audience that what you've been hearing, your, the experience of these two people, their insights and their advice, um, is a, a very powerful set of insights into a serious problem that's occurring more and more in all our societies. Now, in our next episode, we'll talk about elder care and navigating the system, again, always from the perspective of family caregivers. So please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. And thank you for listening. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.